It's Thursday, November 16th, 2023, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Product Manager at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he's well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program and Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. This week, gentlemen, uh, San Francisco is hosting the summit for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. Xi Jinping arrived in the city Tuesday afternoon and was greeted by Governor Gavin Newsom and first partner Jennifer. Um, in this current chaotic international environment with conflicts continuing to rage in Ukraine and the Middle, and the Middle East, President Biden met yesterday on the sidelines of the summit at the lavish Fioli Gardens in Woodside. And of course, San Francisco hosting APEC isn't without controversy. San Francisco continues to be plagued by crime, homelessness, and streets littered with garbage and drug paraphernalia. To keep up appearances for international visitors, the city decided to undergo a massive cleanup effort. More shockingly, the city also built a security barrier to protect President Xi. Uh, last week, Governor Newsom made made the seemingly unfortunate soundbite during the unveiling of a new urban tree planting program in regards to the uh, to the summit at APEC. Quote, I know folks are saying, oh, they're just cleaning up this place because all those fancy leaders are coming to town. That's true because it's true. Bill, isn't this a slap in the face to San Francisco residents and taxpayers of, who have pleaded with city officials that their city address quality of life issues only to see action inspired by the visit of an American adversary? Yeah, I think Lee and Jonathan, the short answer to that is yes, um, it is a slap in the face. Um, that full Newsom quote, by the way, after um, after what you said, he also added, we've been talking about this for months, but that doesn't change the point that it took this APEC summit coming to San Francisco to force the city and the state to spring into action and clean up San Francisco. And by cleaning up, moving at homeless encampments and uh, repainting parts of the uh, city and, and just power flushing the place, things they could have done a year ago if they so wanted to. So yes, if I were a San Francisco resident, San Francisco taxpayer, I'd be furious right now because you know, I've been sitting there in relative squalor waiting for the city and the state to do something. And it takes it takes the world coming to San Francisco to change this. But, you know, it's interesting. In addition to what you mentioned, there was also um, a, uh, a robbery. It was just this summit just kind of showed the best of the worst of San Francisco. It's a beautiful city when it's clean and it's on display. On the other hand, yes, you had um, the hypocrisy question about cleaning up the city. Um, the summit was not without a crime incident. A Czech public TV crew came into town and probably got robbed at uh, gunpoint. Welcome to San Francisco. Um, and then you had protest. You had protest uh, going down Market Street as close as they could get to the summit. Uh, we're doing this on Thursday the 16th. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, protesters went out on the uh, westbound lanes of the San Francisco Bay Bridge and shut it down, protested, locked up traffic for about four hours. So uh, it was kind of the best and worst of San Francisco. But, you know, the question, Lee, would be this. Once the summit is over and um, that cleanup goes away, is San Francisco go back to its status quo? Does anything here change for the better? Bill, that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. Will um will it backslide to what it was before, or will I doubt that all of the changes are going to stick? Um, but but the question becomes, will some of the changes stick? Um, and you know, earlier this week, I spoke on the phone with um, an independent journalist who's lived in San Francisco. I think for like the last thirty thirty five years, she. Um, 
She's one of the grassroots organizers for reforming San Francisco politics and San Francisco policies. And she runs a weekly TV show about San Francisco politics. So she's very, very plugged in. And um, I'll be writing a piece for California on your mind um, in the near future about this. And, and I was actually interviewing her about, um, about her perceptions about San Francisco since APEC. Um, and we talked we talked widely about the issues and um, I'll, I'll share with you a couple of what, a couple of um, I think what were really striking observations that she told me. I asked her, how did people feel that it took APAC to make these changes? And she said, we knew it could happen. We knew the police could come and deal with this. It's, it's at the same time, it's a release because for at least a few days, we have our city city back, but it is also very bitter because we've been living with this for decades. And it's as if to say, we don't matter enough to have a safe, clean city. And, uh, you know, it was interesting that she said the city smells different. She said they've been power washing buildings and streets, and they had been painting poles. She said the containment zone, the apex zone, um, was uh, in terms of drug use and crime and, and just the overall vibe. She said, what was a 10 on a scale of one to 10, 10 being worse? Uh, it's now down to a one or a two. She said, the, I, she said, I was walking in the area the other day. There was a naked woman taking uh, uh, a shower in a fountain the homeless outreach team responded within five minutes. She said many times they won't respond at all if, <clears throat> if or perhaps they might come within two or three hours. They were there within five minutes and, they, and then they had got her out of there. She said the drug trade has largely disappeared from the main corridors, uh, South Market, Tenderloin, um, and uh, Civic Center. She said um, the, um, the UN Center is totally transformed. She said, it just is as if it's a whole new city. Uh, and I said, well, how are they doing this? And she said, police are, uh, she said, every police officer is working 15 days straight. No one's getting a day off. Well, the bills are full. And she said, drug users have responded by either going into hiding or leaving the city. Hopefully they've left the city for good. Uh, perhaps they'll be back after APEC. Um, but uh, another interesting thing she said um, is that, hey, things are changing. People's perceptions of SF are so bad that even in terms of far left people, she said, I know a lot of people, those on the far left, they're fed up. And interesting enough, she said, we all know Newsom wants to be president. And it was interesting, she said, nobody here really has much good to say about him, nothing personal. It's just that his policies that have been placed for a long time have really ruined the city. And she said, at the national stage, I see San Francisco as a cinder block attached to the end of the rope that he's going to wear around his neck. He just won't be able to escape this. Yeah. Actually, Lee, a lot of Californians have problems with the governor these days. And we'll get to that later in the podcast with the poll that came out that shows some very bad approval numbers for him. But, uh, you know, the Internet's been having a field day with this. You take uh, San Francisco, the idea of uh, being nice to a, a Chinese president slash dictator who's visiting and can imagine the memes. My favorite meme, Lee and Jonathan, was one that showed a giant can of Febreze hovering over San Francisco. 
Francisco and spraying away. So uh, you have it. But, you know, Lee, you mentioned Newsom and the presidential thing. And of course, uh, anytime you put Gavin Newsom in a set- setting like this, it uh, it cannot be avoided. But in this case, the president of the United States kind of fanned the flames. And um, on Wednesday night, there was a dinner uh, after uh, Newsom had met with G and um, a lot of uh, local tech people were invited to it. Elon Musk went. And uh, here's what the president of the United States said about our governor, quote, He's been one hell of a governor, man. Matter of fact, he could be anything he wants. He could have the job I'm looking for. Uh, I would love to have had a split screen of Biden saying that and Kamala Harris, who's probably sitting somewhere in that uh, in that audience, either spitting up her drink or choking on her fruit or whatever. But a nice plug for Gavin Newsom. But uh, Newsom did have a good moment here. But again, what is just hard to escape is the question of, you know, a lot of photos on the Internet, Lee, showing San Francisco a year ago versus today, the before and after. But, you know, a year from now, you can put that photo on the right, on the left. And here is 2023. It's really the question what 2024 at this time will look like for San Francisco. Yeah, like how much how much backsliding will occur? And APEC is bringing in an enormous amount of revenue for the city. Right. Um, I mean, thirty. I think there's about thirty thousand people there. Um, without that type of revenue, they're not going to be able to sustain the type of the type of um, manpower they're putting into this. With you know, police not getting a day off, police working overtime. Um, so yeah, Billy, you wonder. To what extent is this um, not just a wake-up call, but will San Franciscans just demand of London Breed and the Board of Supervisors and other policymakers, you better you better keep it this way, because yep. we're not going to accept anything less than this. And of course, 2024 is uh, a re-election year for Breed um, and uh, and some of the soups. And um, you know, another interesting thing that Miss um, Sandberg said to me was. Um, she said there has, she said, you know, in terms of all the people I talked to, and she says, I talked to people, not that there are all that many on the right in San Francisco, but she says, I talked to people who are in the middle. San Francisco middle means a little bit something different than the rest of the country. Middle. She goes, I talked to people way out on the left. Um, and she said, what is, there has been a sea change in the stranglehold that progressives have had on the city. And she, and she said, not even just the Democratic Party. She says, really, the Democratic Socialist Party is, is more influential here than the Democratic Party. And she said they have been, I'm going to quote her, they have been gobsmacked. They have no, they just didn't see this coming and they have no idea how to respond now. So um, perhaps this will be something that will uh, will stick. I'm actually going to do another interview with her in um, uh, in, in a couple of weeks to see what, uh, what uh, if anything, has changed in the city. Um, so I'll have more to say about that. Uh, moving down south of Los Angeles, gentlemen, uh, L.A. is struggling with the aftermath of a massive fire that shut down a portion of the I-10 freeway. Uh, during a press conference earlier this week, um, Governor Newsom claimed that the fire was an act of arson. He specifically used the phrase malicious intent. However, California's authorities have yet to specify the origin of the fire, a suspect or a possible motive. Investigators are still talking to witnesses, including the area's homeless. Uh, During the press conference, Governor Newsom was joined by L.A. Mayor Karen Bass, who made a parallel with the recovery efforts of the 1994 Northridge earthquake, saying, quote, for those of you that remember the 1994 Northridge earthquake, Caltrans worked around the clock to complete the emergency repairs to the freeways. And the structural damage calls for the same level of urgency and effort. Uh, Bill, you were working for then California Governor Pete Wilson at the time. Can you describe uh, that line of effort uh, back almost 20 years ago? Pretty simple. The earthquake 
Yeah, the earthquake happened on January the 17th in 1994. Wilson, like earthquakes tend to happen. It was in the dead of the night. I don't know, Lee, if you were in Los Angeles at the time or not. It was, of course, just a matter of huge inconvenience for everyone. Um, and it was a bad situation because not just the Santa Monica Freeway, but some other freeways were brought down at the same time. But Santa Monica is really a focus because this is a, an important artery in Los Angeles, as Lee can attest to. Uh, Wilson worked with uh, Richard Reardon, uh, then the uh, mayor of Los Angeles, and uh, very quickly moved into action. And what he did... Uh, uh, it's interesting, whereas Mira Bass would say this is really kind of a heroic saga of Caltrans workers, and don't get me wrong, they did great work around the clock here. Um, Wilson thought outside the box, and he thought outside the box uh, in great part because he had advice from the late George Schultz and Michael Boskin, uh, a Hoover Institution senior fellow. Uh, they were both mem members of the Governor's Council of Economic Advisors. And Wilson did two things in particular that sped this up. Number one, he uh, froze environmental reviews. In other words, just instead of having this uh, become um, paralysis by analysis as you go through all environmental loopholes, and as Lee and I have talked on this show before about CEQA and various things like that, fast track through that so they could speed along construction. Secondly, uh, they hired a, uh, a constructor by the name of C.C. Myers and Company to come in and do the construction, and they made it incentive-based, which is something that state government does not do. And what they did was they offered Myers a contract with a set date for finishing it with a $200,000 bonus per day if he finished every day, for every day that he finished early. And lo and behold, they finished early. I think they opened up the freeway something like three weeks ahead of time, and it was just kind of a very good success story as to what government can do when it is creative and kind of of unleashed and friendly with the public sector, if you will. So that's a question, uh, Lee, in terms of the um, of the uh, dealing with uh, the Santa Monica Freeway here in 2023. Will the state government and the city government get creative in a way to think outside the box to speed this up? Because, you know, one reason why Governor Newsom was on top of this with Mayor Bass, nothing drives voters more crazy than, you know, gridlock and being shut down on their freeways. So, so you know, it's now, and by the way, this is one of the interesting things about this back in 1994, um, when uh, the Wilson administration said it would take several months to do this, there's immediate pushback on the left saying that he's exaggerating for political purposes. Uh, I've noticed that Newsom and Bass have said this is going to be uh, shut down for several weeks, I think three to five weeks is the time frame they put out there. But the question really is, Lee, the creative thinking, because as we've seen in this administration, push comes to shove, especially in economic matters, they create a 108-member economic recovery task force to solve the problem. There's no way 108 members in 2023 are going to come up with creative solutions to open that freeway early. I say no reason why it shouldn't take anything more than three to five weeks. Um, I think they should be able to get it done sooner. But what was possible in California roughly 30 years ago is, I don't think, possible today. I say possible because... It could be possible, but not with the leadership we have we have in place. So um, I suspect it'll take much longer than three to five weeks, despite the enormous cost this this imposes on businesses and people um, living in Los Angeles. And Bill, um, you know what I thought was a bit of a tone deaf tweet came from um, the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, who um, who who posted a tweet and it showed her riding um, on one of the city buses with a big smile on her face and. And she was saying ridership is up ten percent the last the last two days, and of course the last two days has been since the I, the I10 has been shut down there. Uh, and she was talking about oh we're doing this wonderful job and we're adding more we're adding more routes and people people love people love mass transit and no they don't. Mike, is, Mike, is, Michael Bloomberg rode the subway every day to work as mayor of Los Angeles. I, I don't know if Mayor Bass rides the bus every day to work, but that kind of sounds to me Lee, like a celebrity who you know, endorses some lousy soft drink. And the moment they cut the camera, they spit it out. And, uh, yeah, yeah. 
No, yeah, I, 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 I thought it was a very tone deaf moment. Um, instead of writing mass transit, she should be telling people, this is what we're gonna do to get this back in operation just as remarkably fast as possible. And Bill, you know, it's ironic that um, you know we've talked many times about regulations in California, particularly regulations that impede development and uh, and building, both commercial and residential. And maybe the state and the city will think will think long and hard about the protections they provide for eviction because um, the fire occurred at a property that had been leased by, um, by a landlord that hadn't paid rent in over a year. Um, right. And it was rent, it was leased from Caltrans. And Caltrans was in the process of trying to get this guy evicted. Um, you would think it wouldn't be that difficult to get him evicted, particularly when he had sublet the space illegally um, to people that had bare wood pallets sitting there that is when when you say fire the bare wood pallet lights up almost on its own spontaneous ignition um so it's sadly ironic that this could have been avoided in in, in a state in a city where it can take years to build something presumably because we want to make sure that it's environmentally friendly and there's not going to be damages and no one's going to get hurt we have this kind of thing happen. Um, I'm glad you and- mentioned that about. I'm glad you mentioned about Caltrans, Lee, because um, there are two things here I think worth noting. Number one, uh, when was the last time anybody in Sacramento looked into Caltrans and contracting, and how diligent Caltrans is in terms of, in terms of studying its leases and also just its eyes on the ground in terms of what's going on underneath freeways, which sounds like a whole entire ecosystem of not just companies but homelessness, which is what we'll get to in a minute. Um, so if they were an aggressive state controller, or dare I say, if the state Republican law lawmakers had a pulse, they would probably be on top of this domain investigation. But the other issue here is homelessness. And here I note, by the way, uh, California newspapers, Lee and Jonathan, suddenly don't like to use the H word. It's now, we now, instead of calling a homeless population, we now use phrases like uh, unhoused residents and things like that. It's kind of like how we moved away from legal immigrants to undocumented Californians, if you will. But I think the homeless issue overshadows this as well in this regard. And maybe this is one of the reasons why the governor has been kind of over his skis in terms of saying malicious intent and kind of knowing the origins of this. I think he does not want in any way for this to become a story about a homeless encampment underneath the freeway lighting a fire, which started the explosion or something like that. So you could have two paths here, Lee. Another conversation about homelessness in California, just how many homeless people are living under freeways and possible tender boxes. But the other question, Lee, and it kind of reminds me of the EDD scandal, which you've written about for us. California on your mind is really how camp, how competent is Caltrans in monitoring what goes on underneath its freeways? Yeah, well, not very, not not very close at all, Bill. It turns out. Um, so another issue of accountability, um, Caltrans is an organization that's just enormous budget, uh, and not just enormous; it's enormous for the size of and scope for for what it does. And Bill, um, you know, Newsom has Newsom has come out there saying prematurely that uh, this is malicious intent. Um, and I've seen some other stories um, suggesting a sarsen. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure we've seen um, a, an official declaration that it was arson, but um, you know, you wonder how much politics is playing into that premature statement he's saying. Um, yep. but, but, but sadly, um, there've been a number of fires in Los Angeles that have been quite destructive that have been front and center at homeless encampments. And the cause typically is somebody burning a fire to either stay warm 
or to cook something. Um, a few years ago, there was um, a terrible fire that started in Ventura and uh, it was windblown and went all the way up um, up into Santa Barbara. Uh, affected me and my family. We, we had to leave our home and we, we were out of our home for an awful long time. Uh, we were lucky and our, our home was <clears throat> our home was spared. But um, that fire in Ventura started um, on the very day that two fires started in Los Angeles at homeless encampments. And those fires at homeless encampments sucked in quite a bit of uh, firefighting resources. So one might ask the question, okay, well, if we didn't have to go and fight those fires, could that Ventura fire had could that have been contained and not spread all the way up um, 30 miles up into Santa Barbara? So again, Newsom in his state of the state speech, uh, shoot, uh, earlier this year, just in January of this year, talked about homelessness, saying we've got to do the right thing. And he gave this very moral and right, these moral and righteous statements. Um, and we have 170,000 plus homeless in the state. Um, that's bigger than the capital of Oregon at 170 plus thousand. Um, he loves to talk about how much money is being spent. Um, but at the end of the day, these are the issues that people are facing every day. And uh, we just cross our fingers that these kinds of events, such as uh, the fire that happened under the I-10, um, we just keep our fingers crossed and pray that these things don't happen. Um, but they all well, I'd be very curious to see what actually the origin is of the fire. And then secondly, I'd also be very curious to see how the Los Angeles Times approaches this, because this is a newspaper that historically does great investigative work. And boy, if ever there's an opportunity for a multi-part series about Los Angeles, it'd be life underneath LA's freeways. Oh, absolutely. Gentlemen, let's turn to the topic of education. Uh, Lee, uh, in the column that you wrote last week, uh, you taught for California Mind, you describe how Hamas's attack on Israel has revealed the political agenda of the University of California's Ethnic Studies Faculty Council, the ESFC, which is charged with designing and promoting a highly politicized school curriculum known as Liberated Ethnic Studies. You write, Lee, that Liberated Ethnic Studies is founded on the notion that the U.S. is a highly racist society in which whites systematically oppress minorities. Lee, can you explain the events that led to the revelation of the ESFC's perspective about Hamas and what it says about the curriculum being taught to young people in the Golden State? Yeah, Jonathan, um, recently, I think probably three years ago, um, a law was passed, um, Newsom signed, uh, that requires high school students to complete at least one course in ethnic studies. Um, so what's ethnic studies? Well, the legislation, the language within the legislation pretty much says, we want students to become citizens of the world and appreciate other cultures and accept people for who we are. And all oh, that sounds good, but ethnic studies within California high schools is, is anything but that. Um, ethnic study, the ethnic studies curriculum is largely being designed by um, a faculty council within the University of California. The faculty council includes 300 people. Um, of course, not all 300 are involved in designing this new curriculum. Uh, but the curriculum is not anything about helping students become a citizen of the world and understand the wonderful foods that come from Kenya and, and, uh, and Mongolia and, and Italy, for example. Um, it's very much um, a partisan curriculum that essentially says, hey, 
white males are bad and um, they do a lot of oppressing, uh, particularly for people of color. Um, and that's what our courses are going to be about. That's, that's largely what the curriculum is. It took um, three different revisions of this curriculum to finally get it to be um, signed by Newsom. Uh, and what really came to light last week, um, Jonathan, um, is that the president of the University of California, a fellow named Michael Drake, um, very prominent physician, and the chair of the UC Board of Regents, a fellow named Rich Lieb, um, they issued a statement on behalf of the UC system that condemned uh, the October 7th Hamas attack. It was very, very brief. Uh, it essentially expressed grief for those affected on both sides, it expressed hope for peaceful revolution, and it also called the Hamas attack a terrorist attack. So what happens next is this 300 faculty Ethnic Studies Council sends a letter. Um, it was publicly sent. It was there's an open letter. It was but it was addressed to the UC President Drake and the UC Board of Regents uh, Rich Lee, and um, it, it's it's essentially um, abhorrent and dishonest in my opinion. Um, this Ethnic Faculty Studies Faculty Council uh, claims that. Um, the leadership of the UC distort and misrepresent the unfolding genocide of Palestinians. They irresponsibly wield charges of terrorism and they have contributed to a climate that has made Palestinian students and community members unsafe, even in their own homes. And this was a real head scratcher <laughs> because what we know from the Hamas attacks is that there is an Israeli mom and, and child clutched each other, clutching each other as they are burned alive. Women and girls were raped. Children were beheaded. Torture, dismembering of victims. Um, I mean, there's no reasonable person, um, in my opinion, that would not call that a terrorist, horrific, unhuman attack. And yet the same ethnic studies faculty are saying, well, the UC leadership really should join us in calling for freedom for Palestinians, and they should not be calling Hamas terrorists, and they should not be um, inciting people to violence against Middle East. And um, the, the, the statement that Drake and Lieb made is online, it's easily found. I would dare anybody to find to read that and make the and make the claim that that was an inflammatory statement that there was anything unreasonable about what they uh, what they wrote. So yeah. it's uh, so it's um, so this is three hundred this is three hundred UC faculty and I'll just close with with this one last thought. One of the other regents, um, one of the other regents um, on the board, wrote the following: a fellow named Jay Suris. Um, who uh, who is a major um, uh, Bill? I don't know if I don't know him. Perhaps you do. He's at United Artists, um, very very successful um, person in the entertainment business. Here is what UC Regent Regent Jay Suris writes in response to these UC faculty who think um, Hamas apparently is entirely justified. He writes, there are absolutely no words to describe how appalling and repugnant I found your letter. It is rife with falsehoods about Israel. It seeks to legitimize and defend the horrific savagery of the Hamas massacre. You ask us as a body, the regents, to retract our charges of terrorism, to uplift the Palestinian freedom struggle, and to stand against genocide of Palestinians. 
Well, the thought that young and impressionable students might be taught the falsehoods of your letter absolutely sickens me. Your organization to commit should commit to learning more about anti-Semitism and all forms of hate, how it lives on our campuses, where you are tasked and trusted to educating our next generation of students and leaders. So I'm very glad he wrote that because the letter from these UC faculty is, um, is, that, is, is abhorrent. Lee, I had a conversation the other day with one of our colleagues at Hoover, uh, who also teaches at Stanford. He's a very celebrated teacher. He's very popular in the classroom. And I asked him this question because I've been walking around the campus and, you know, there have been uh, kids out for three weeks now protesting over uh, Palestine. And you see chalk on the um, on the uh, grounds uh, saying derogatory things about Israel, banners draped and so forth. And my question to our colleague was, do kids, you know, some of the brightest kids in America come to a school like Stanford, as they do to your UCLA, do kids come to college pre-wired this way in terms of their worldview? Or is this something they pick up in college? And if they pick it up in college, do they pick it up on, from their fellow students or is this from professors? And he said the answer is neither the above. He said the answer, the problem is kids are getting this in high school. So I read your column and I thought to myself, this is only going to make the problem worse, especially as some of the you know, allegations are is that there's going to be anti-Semitism in this uh, ethnic studies that these kids are going to learn. But here's my question, Lee. Uh, it's not just a question of teaching ethnic studies. The question is who's going to teach the teachers, if you will. Uh, we have historically in California very specific credentials when it comes to teaching things. I remember back in the in the dark ages when I worked in state government, we pointed out some of the fallacies of K-12, one of which was that uh, uh, Bill Walsh, who was the legendary coach of the San Francisco 49ers, if he retired from football at the time, he could not have got a job teaching K-12 through PE. He was not qualified in their, in their reviews for that. Um, so there's a question at this hour, Lee, of what qualifies a student to teach ethnic studies, which is now going to take us to another avenue, I think, how ethnic studies are taught in the CSU and UC system. So, you know, Lee, it just seems to me this this bill is just going to create a lot of this law, I should say, is going to create a lot of you know, unattended consequences, wonder which now is what kids are going to learn, not just in high schools, but colleges. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. Um, the teaching establishment in California and within public schools, pretty much every other state in the country, um, this is kind of a classic cartel. Um, cartels pre prevent entry. <laughs> they don't like competition. So, yeah, one of the most famous football coaches ever lived <laughs> is not qualified to teach physical educa education yet. So, so it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, and Bill, it's absolutely right. Kids are getting this in uh, in high school. Um, there is, uh, you know, who is qualified to teach ethnic studies? Well, it'll be the people who the UC Ethnic Studies Faculty Council will say, who are who get to teach those uh, those classes. Um, before the ethnic studies um, requirement became law, um, I wrote a couple of pieces for California on, on your mind about this, expressing. Uh, concern about anti-Semitism in the curriculum, and also crazy things such as Martin Luther King was not discussed within the curriculum, yet convicted cop killers um, who are convicted with ballistic evidence and eyewitness evidence and all sorts of evidence, they are in the curriculum. Um, you know, crazy stuff like that. Uh, so those are the people who are going to be teaching our kids. Um, yeah. And you know, Bill, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, a few years ago, I was I was at a lunch. Uh, I was at a lunch on campus. You know, there was a UCLA event. Woman sitting next to me was from the sociology department, and somehow the topic of Israel came up. And I really and I thought, I really don't want to talk about Israel with this woman. But in any case, she went on a rant about Israel and Zionism and the Palestinians, the Middle East. 
And finally, I uh, I asked her, I said, well, you say Israel stole this land. Um, do you know when Is Israelites were first in this land? It was about 2000 before Christ. It was the from the people from the Canaanites. And she looked at me like, well, I didn't know that. And we went through the we went through the history, including the takeover by the Ottoman Empire and the British from 1917 up until 1947, and the number of times a two-state solution had been offered, and the fact that Israel was attacked by Syria and Jordan and Egypt immediately upon being, you know, declaring themselves a sovereign state. Um, and interestingly enough, Bill, none of this made a none of this made a dent on her. Um, it it ends up becoming, no pun intended, just a religious belief. Um, and I'm afraid that we're going to have to be living with this for for an awful long time. Yeah, I would note, Lee, that when a bill like this uh, becomes law, uh, immediately there's pushback in more conservative parts of California, Orange County, for example. But uh, I'm up at uh, Northern California, and I'm in Santa Clara County, just across the border from San Mateo County, Lee and Jonathan, where about a thousand uh, parents uh, sent in very angrily letters about this. And um, their concern is basically this, Lee, and you can appreciate this as a professor. Um, their concern is that kids aren't really being taught how to critically assess uh, issues are being taught how to think. And this is just goes to the heart of education, Lee, being like you teaching an economics class and saying, in effect, that, you know, that uh, Milton Friedman was a jackass and John Maynard Keynes was a god. In other words, you're not supposed to kind of skew people's views of history. You're supposed to kind of encourage kids to kind of learn how to think things themselves. Yeah, you'd like to think our school system helps kids to think independently and gives them the tools to logically evaluate arguments and, and draw their own conclusions. Even if those conclusions offer in the gray area, as so much of life often is, um, but there's a lot of indoctrination going on, and there is a lot of pushback within California schools among parents. Um, about three hundred plus thousand kids have left public K through twelve in the state um, since two thousand nineteen. And a big part of that is because parents are just getting fed up with the education or the lack of education that's being taught in our schools. Well, Lee, I want to go back to the question of how teachers are taught, because this ties into another of your columns that you wrote for California Reminded. This is about a new law which requires media literacy uh, for kids in K through 12. And first of all, are you going to tell me that we're actually we're trying to teach media literacy to kindergartners? I have grandnephews who are kindergartners, and trust me, there's not much they're really thinking of besides who's on who's playing football on Sunday. Um, but again, this question, Lee, if we're going to be teaching kids about disinformation in K through 12, Who's going to teach teachers what disinformation constitutes? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, one of our new laws this, this year, uh, uh, signed in by, by Newsom, is that California law requires essentially fake news classes to be taught beginning in kindergarten, Bill. So um, you'll have to pry your nephews away from, <laughs> from watching that screen and start thinking about CNN good, Fox News bad, because that's what essentially this is about. Um, uh, Mark Berman, who's uh, who's in the state assembly, he's a Democrat, uh, represents Menlo Park. He sponsored the bill and he said, I've seen the impact that misinformation has in the real world, how it affects the way people vote, whether they accept the outcomes of elections or try to overthrow our democracy. So those are obviously um, obviously not so subtle hints uh, towards uh, towards Trump and his supporters. Um, but Bill, you know, ironically, the state keeps loading up more and more requirements on kids to, to graduate. 
ethnic studies, uh, fake news requirements. Um, and that is um, that seems silly when um, only one out of four of our kids is proficient <clears throat> in math or science or English. So <clears throat> this bill wants them to be able to read media and be able to figure out what's accurate and what's not accurate. Well, they really, you know, they have a hard time reading reading it all. And Bill, when you know, when you know, hey, who's going to teach the teachers? Well, there've been some studies about the ability of, uh, of a broad cross-section of adults uh, to be able to detect fake news. Well, the ability of people to do that is somewhere between 4% uh, to about 25% um, within the studies that have been done. So yeah, who's going to teach the teachers? It is a hard thing to do. And when something's difficult, people fall back on what they feel comfortable with. So in the column I wrote, that's why I said this is going to devolve into a CNN, MSNBC, good, Fox News, Breitbart, bad. And um, and meanwhile, most kids in public K through 12 are sadly deficient in virtually all of the basics. Um, so rather than loading up kids in schools with more requirements, let's figure out how to teach kids and make sure that they have the skills they, they need to be able to compete in a few years when they have to figure out how to make a living for themselves, or else they will become one of the new homeless statistics. Let me add one wrinkle to this, Lee, I don't want your thoughts on this. You're the proud father of a very strapping young man, um, still in high school, I believe. At what age would you let your son go on either TikTok or X? Because if you're going to try to teach disinformation, you know, that's the heart of disinformation these days, social media. In other words, would you let a three-year-old, a third grader, a fourth grader, a fifth grader, would you give them access to X and and, um, and TikTok to supposedly look at disinformation? Because now you're just exposing those kids to all kinds of stuff. Yeah, all sorts of things. Um, I'm fortunate. My, my son is now um, 16. He'll be 17 early next year. So thankfully, a lot of this stuff didn't really catch on until he was he was older. Um, yeah. And there's a there's a number of wonderful aspects um, in social media, um, but there's an awful lot of garbage that comes along with that. And obviously, children um, aren't emotionally uh, or academically prepared to how to deal with that. So, um, though I'm really glad I'm, I'm I don't have a kindergartner right now because I would have to be monitoring that. And shutting that down for many, many years to come. Well, t take it again as the uh, proud granduncle of uh, four very thriving young grandnephews. Uh, they want to watch the Red Zone on Sundays. They don't want to watch Fox News or CNN. Okay, well, you know, let's keep our fingers crossed. That 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 holds. Lee, to your point about um, proficiency in your column or lack thereof in math, reading, and science. You know, another way to look at this: how will they how will they these kids ever be able to discern from fact and fiction if they lack the ba the basics in these areas? Yeah, the, um, you know, I, I write about education, I don't know, about one out of four, maybe one out of five of my columns is about education in California, because we do such an awful job, um, really, literally 25% proficiency rate in reading and in math and in science. Um, and those proficiency rates are brought up substantially by Asian American kids. Um, you take Asian American kids out, you look at say just Hispanic kids or black kids and proficiency dips to about 15%. Um, this is just an abject, this is an abject failure. The K through 12 education system should be put literally into receivership. Um, it's, 
Its annual budget um, is, I believe, close to $130 billion, which exceeds the combined state budgets of Tennessee, Ohio, and uh, and I believe Pennsylvania. I have the th- I have the three states whose combined budgets are all are are, um, are less than California's education budget. And those three states have about 33 million people compared to California's 39 million. We spend a lot on education. Uh, we're simply not getting a return for it. And, and you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, virtue signaling here in the state. And uh, I'll do my own little virtue signaling here, which is um, there's there's no better investment we can make than, than in the kids who will inherit our future and, um, and guide the state in, in, in future years. Um, and we're doing a huge disservice to them. Um, it is uh, it, it is awful in terms of the outcomes that we're seeing. We should demand much better. Uh, parents, a few parents are beginning to. I mentioned three hundred thousand kids are no longer within K, uh, public K through twelve. They're in private schools and and being homeschooled. It could be it could be so much better, and it could be so much better within a year or two. Um, but there's an enormous political education complex out there and there's an awful lot of incumbent interests and all those dollars and um year in year out we continue to fail our kids um and at this point this has largely become um a democratic party problem because this is a super majority state with a with a democratic governor and they could they could put some pressure on the education system and say you've got to do better and here's here's here, here's the goals we need for in the next three years the next five years um that's never done. There's just more money being thrown at the problem. Um, so, so Lee, final thought on this. It seems to me we have a real disconnect here and that on the one hand, the state um, wants to make it so that kids will understand that disinformation is bad and that two plus two does not equal five. And the other hand, we're doing such a rotten job of teaching them that they can't understand that two plus two equals four. No, no. The, um, the proficiency statistics I cited, um, the, bar is, the bar is not particularly high. Uh, to give an example, in math, only one out of four California eighth graders could look at a number line and pick the midpoint between two numbers they were given. And the and the number line included tick marks. All you need to do is count halfway up and you get the right answer. Only one out of four got the right answer. Um, it is grim. Let's conclude uh, this episode by talking about the governor. Uh, tomorrow marks the 20th anniversary of Arnold Schwarzenegger swearing in as California's 38th governor following a special election in 2003, the first election that I voted in, uh, in which his predecessor, Gray Davis, was also recalled from office. Uh, You write about the governor's legacy two decades on, Bill, for California on your mind. Um, As a veteran of an administration of a two-term Republican governor in Pete Wilson, as you noted earlier, Bill, did the governor meet the expectations of the voters who put him into office? And was he successful in implementing and executing policies that contributed to the state's prosperity? Well, first of all, Jonathan, nice cheap shot that the first time you voted was 2003. Some, <laughs> of, some of us have voted a long time by then. So well done, my friend. Um, OK, so the question, did Arnold meet expectations and what did he get done? Um, long answer short, it's complicated. Uh, he didn't meet expectations because I think, in fairness to the man, the expectations were ridiculously high. And a lot of people thought, well, we're we're electing a celebrity and an action hero, and this is going to become kind of an action movie. He's going to go in there and just basically kind of, you know, kick Fanny and just, you know, knock the heads with the bad guys. And, you know, goodness will prevail in the end. And politics is not a two-hour action movie, as we saw. Um, it's very interestingly, Jonathan, on the one hand, you look at Schwarzenegger's record and 
he does things Republicans would loudly cheer for. He he uh, got workers' comp reform. He uh, repealed a bill granting driver's licenses to undocumented Californians. He was very pro-business. If you go back, Lee, and look at the uh, jobs record, the California Chamber of Commerce, uh, the job killers record uh, under Arnold's watch. This is done by the California Chamber of Commerce each year. Um, Arnold, uh, I think, was presented with 67 bills during his time. He killed all but four of them, so very pro-business in that regard. But yet there is a griping about him. Now, part of that was very showy because he did move on the climate. But what I point out in the column here, Lee and Jonathan, is that people wanted to connect Schwarzenegger to Reagan. And yes, you take uh, A-R-N-O-L-D and rearrange it, you get R-O-N-A-L-D. It's a very clever thing if you want to. But Reagan had an ideological epiphany on the way to Sacramento. He had kind of he'd moved from being a New Deal Democrat to a very conservative Republican. Arnold, on the other hand, was very much a policy work in progress. And full disclosure, I worked with him before he ran for governor, so I saw a lot of this up close. Um, so when it came time, for example, he was presented in his first year a bill that banned the uh, production of foie gras, fattening goose liver in California. But he signed it, and Republicans thought, if you lost your mind, what Arnold was doing was Arnold wanted to do business with John Burton, who was the uh, president pro tem of the Senate at the time. When Arnold moved on climate change, again, Republicans thought he had lost his mind, but this is kind of just his policy evolution, if you will. Um, so note the expectations and, and the policy, again, complicated. But um, the intriguing question to me, uh, there are two intriguing questions here. One is, if you go back to 2003, just like a Terminator going back in time, I would add, um, if Arnold had run not as a Republican, but an independent and my first thought was, yeah, he probably would have won just because he was such a novelty at the time. And it was just such a circus, as you well remember, Jonathan, voting for the first time. Um, but um, I went back and I looked at the numbers here, Lee and Jonathan. If you go back to October 2003 and look at the registration numbers in California, 43.7% Democratic, 35.3% Republican, 16% Independent. Those numbers today are 46.8% Democratic, so Democrats have picked up about three points. Republicans have bled about uh, almost 12 points, or down to 23.9, and Independents are up to 22.2. So he would have had to run a very different campaign. He was very much kind of a traditional Republican we ran in 2003. He would have had to have been kind of a different version of the Terminator in that. And maybe he gets over the finish line, but it wouldn't have been quite the same. So yeah, in terms of media expectations, no. But you know what? In retrospect, boy, it sure was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> Lee, you remember those good old days. I do. I do. And and um, and Jonathan, I didn't know you were so wet behind the ears. 2003. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to let you forget that. Right. <laughs> um, you know, Bill, as, uh, as, I was as I was reading your column um, this out today in, uh, in California on your mind on the Hoover website, um, I thought, my God, what a different place California was um, yeah. just 20 years ago. Uh, even 17 years ago when um, when Schwarzenegger, um, so 03 was the uh, 03 was the recall and then 06 was the was the regular was the general election. And Bill, I think Arnold received something like 56 percent of the vote. In 06 compared to a, I think right. about 39 percent for uh, for Angelides on the Democratic side. Right. Um, my God, I I can't I can't imagine I can't imagine that happening today coming close to happening today um, in just those 17 years. And I saw his first term as one of um, experiencing um, the challenges of, of being a little bit politically naive. I mean, he's obviously a, a very charming, intelligent, um, highly accomplished person who reads people well, but um, you know, he made, 
He called for a special election bill um, in which he won, in, in which he introduced a number of reforms, and I, I believe all those got voted down, didn't they, Bill? And that really was sort of a uh, they got a, they got crushed, Lee. They got hit very hard. And this is one thing about his seven years that's worth noting here. So he comes in on a high in two thousand three. He he runs in this crazy circus of this race with one hundred and thirty candidates, I think, on the recall ballot, and he gets about forty eight and a half percent of the vote, darn near darn near fifty percent. And that's with the Republican Tom McClintock getting fourteen percent. So that's that's a mandate. And he had lawmakers in Sacramento scaredly and Jonathan. That's how he got workers' comp, for example. They did not want to get into ballot fights with him. In 2004, though, he starts to get a comeuppance. He goes around the state that November and campaigns up and down the state for Republican uh, legislative candidates. None of them get elected. And then 2005, he does what Lee just mentioned. He calls a special election. He puts a handful of measures on the ballot. All interesting ideas, by the way, but not necessarily connected. He wanted uh, he wanted budget reforms. He wanted teacher tenure reform and so forth. Uh, the establishment in Sacramento, the T- California Teachers Union, fought him to the death. They beat him at the ballot box. So he hit a low in 2005. But then, as Lee mentioned, he comes storming back in 06 to get reelected. He embraces climate change. But then trouble occurs again in 08, 09 in his final year, 2010, the economy. The economy tanks in California, massive budget deficits, and Arnold's very unpopular. He's at about 23% in the polls when he leaves. He is so unpopular as the governor, by the way, Lee and Jonathan, that Jerry Brown, who's running against Meg Whitman in the 2010 election, he runs one of the most clever ads you'll ever see. It's called Echo. And what he does is he does side-by-sides of Arnold saying something and then Meg Whitman saying it almost verbatim. In other words, he's tying it how unpopular Arnold is. But, you know, this is a curious function about Arnold Schwarzenegger in general. Uh, in politics, in movies, in his personal life, it's a series of highs and lows, if you will. In fact, here we are on uh, Tuesday the 16th. Tomorrow there'll be a reunion of his uh, people in Sacramento. He said he'll be back, so he's back in Sacramento. Um but he, it's a bit of a renaissance for him right now. There was a Netflix special on him this summer, which kind of looks into his life. He has a book out right now. He was on, of all things, uh, Monday Night Football a couple of weeks ago with his uh, with his pet donkey. <laughs> he has got a menagerie of animals in his Los Angeles house. People are kind of re-embracing the personality, if you will. But, you know, it was just as Lee mentioned, just a very different time. Um, but the final note on this, and I'll let it go for the day, um, there's a very cautionary warning in all of this for one, Gavin Newsom, who we always like to talk about in this podcast. Um, before APEC, the governor did not have a good week, and they did not have a good week in the form of a poll that came out from Berkeley IGS, which showed that his approval rating is at its lowest in his governorship right now. It's fallen from 55% in February to 44%. At present, he's uh, polling at only 38% among moderates. He is 15% less popular among 18 to 29 year olds than he was at this time in February. And we've seen this movie before in California politics. Arnold was very unpopular when he left in 2010, uh, uh, 2011, I should say, that 23% of rule I mentioned. Jerry Brown, the great Jerry Brown, in his first uh, two terms as California governor, his final year, he runs for the Senate against Pete Wilson, and he gets whomped. And that's in part because, as he recognized afterwards, Voters were sick and tired of him. So if I'm Governor Newsom, I've had a nice sugar high here at APEC, but I'd probably take some time to watch Arnold in Sacramento on Friday and kind of think about the lesson of uh, the Schwarzenegger experience in Sacramento, which is that fame could be fleeting and so too could be popularity. So too can be popularity. Um, those are interesting numbers for Newsom. Um, one well, way well, well, And I'd add to that, Lee, by the way. Uh, so Newsom is underwater in California. He's 44% popular, 49 unpopular. Joe Biden's also underwater in California. Sorry to, sorry to butt in. No, no, no. It, it's, uh, and, you know, Bill, um, to the extent that we're not seeing accomplishments um, for Gavin, some level 44%, uh, I, 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 could, I, I could see that number being even lower, um, given the issues that a lot of that 
the median voter in California faces. Um, and Bill, you know, I don't know how much um, when you look at Newsom, <clears throat> when you look at Newsom now, um, he seems bored by the job. Although on the other hand, it's hard to tell whether it's just purely pure boredom and he wants to go out and stretch his, stretch his wings and be part of the national scene. Or maybe he's just looking at the state and realizing I'm here for um, I'm here for three more years. Uh, and there's really, given the way California works, there's really nothing much I can do. Uh, both of those are very sad statements about politics within our state. Um, and uh, I really don't know where all that goes from here. Um, well, so you know, he is term he is term limited, Lee. So that's got to be frustrating. Uh, he's always suffered from what I'd call political restless leg syndrome, where he um, gets bored with the office. This was a knock against him when he's mayor of San Francisco. Then he moves over to lieutenant governor. Uh, so you can see signs of that. But I think that poll is as simple as this. I think it's voters pushing back against him for just being too involved in national politics. Too many fights with Ron DeSantis, and they're going to have that debate coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, people just kind of wanting him to stay attention to state businesses. So I think that gets back to him just taking a very active role in that Los Angeles situation and maybe trying to get away from the homeless issue. Because if people are frustrated with you to begin with, if that situation in Los Angeles turns out to be another reminder of homelessness, that's just going to drive his numbers further down. Yeah, exactly. And when he was elected, it was essentially foregone conclusion that he would that he would have a full eight years, uh, despite the recall that we did see in which he won easily. With eight years, you should be able to accomplish a lot. But he's now been in office nearly five years um, and all of his major campaign promises have failed abysmally. Um, so I sort of see him as uh, I think he's going to I think he's going to do a Nixon and uh, declare uh, declare victory and 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 think he's going to be taking a victory lap like Arnold's doing uh, and cruise out the lab the next three years of his of his uh, of his term. As always, gentlemen, this has been an hour of interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. And guys, have a great Thanksgiving. Too. You fellas do as well. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mervoitis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.